So I have a little, little closet where I go in and pray before the service on Sunday morning. And um, I was in there this morning and heard a couple of folks coming in and out of the office, heard from some folks talking in there, you know, which is not unusual. And I usually don't come out even if I hear somebody in there talking because I'm, well, I just don't want to. I want to stay in there. And then I heard singing this morning. I heard music. And I thought, that's kind of weird. And I looked at my watch and it was 10 after, you know, 10 after 10. And so I just checked with Seraph as I walked in and said, and, and her says 11 o'clock. Mine says 10.35. For real. That's what, my, that's what my Sunday watch says. So I was just in there just, you know, enjoying my... And join my quiet time. So this this watch will not be up here in case you're wondering. You ever seen those preachers take their watch off and set it up here and you all know that it means nothing. All right. So I don't even have one today. Okay. So let's just let's just get that out of the way. So came in here and I it was just weird. Okay. I was I'm just all off kilter today completely. All right. Already just just because my watch quit. There is a stack in the back uh, at the bookstore of Dane Ortland's little book called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I cannot commend this book to you more highly. I recommend it to you, and the best part of it is it's free. We, we got an offer here. I don't even remember. Do you where, where did it come from? The publisher, Jace? Do you remember? Yeah, Crossway sent an invitation or sent a, you know, and said churches could order it for free. So we ordered several cases. And I encourage you to go back there and get one. If you've not read it, please do. Uh, I'd encourage you to, to give it to someone. It is a, a just tremendous, just a tremendous source of encouragement and comfort and just a beautiful picture of Christ. Only God could schedule us to give away today. They arrived this week. Could schedule us to give away a book about the gentleness and lowliness of Christ on the Sunday that we're going to end Revelation chapter 14, all right? The, the contrast in that could not be clear. I think it's, it just strikes me as hilarious that that's the case, okay? You may not see it that way, but the fact that we're giving away this book as we're preaching on hell and Jesus coming and treading out the winepress of the wrath of God, it's just... <laughs> it's just interesting, all right, I guess is, is the way I'm going to put it. Um, but here's the deal. There's no conflict in that. There's no conflict in us saying Jesus is gentle and lowly, and Jesus will also be the one treading out the winepress of the holy wrath of God. Now, it should cause us some consternation in our souls. I wish Revelation 14 and many other passages with it weren't there, honestly, because it's hard. It's, 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 one of the, it's a hard part of biblical truth. It just is to me, all right? And, and all of us should in some way um, look at what we read in a passage like Revelation chapter 14 and step back and take pause and say, God... I need you to help me see this in the way I should, understand it in the way I should, apply it in my life and in the lives of others the way I should. All right? So um, pick up a copy of Dane Ortland's book before you go today. They'll be out there for some time. It's interesting what Dane Ortland says about this contrast, this seeming difficult point. And he's caught no small amount of grief, by the way. Criticism of his book has been immense. Because many say you diminish, you downplay the full character of Christ by simply focusing on his gentleness and lowliness. And here's what Ortland says about that himself. In an interview that I read this week, he said, how does Christ's gentleness fit in with his wrath? He said, that's an urgent, immediate, obvious thing that we need to keep wrestling with. And one way to tackle that, I think, is to say that there would be no gentleness of heart if there were no wrath, no taking sin with utmost seriousness. If Jesus, Ortland says, were a big softy with no wrath, 
no judgment toward hardness of heart, no judgment toward impenitent sin. Actually, he says, I believe that his gentle, lowly heart dissolves. It's both or neither. Otherwise, if he's not a wrathful, judging Christ to the unrepentant, then he's not really gentle and lowly in heart at all. He's just smilier than we are. He's just nicer. It's froth. People tend to think of the wrath and gentleness of Christ like two ends of seesaw. One goes down, the other goes up. But Ortland says, no, it's more like two elevators that rise and fall together as if they're tied together. And if one goes up, the other goes up. It's both, not neither. So let's grapple with this today in Revelation chapter 14. Take your Bible and let's look at the passage. In this section of Revelation 14, 12 through 14, that we come to an end with uh, today of this little section, it starts with, with the birth of a son to this woman who is going to rule, this, this son is going to rule with a rod of iron, and it concludes here in chapter 14 with what that ruling with that rod of iron looks like. It's what the psalmist in Psalm 2 prophesied, that God would declare his son as his chosen one who sits on his throne. And the psalmist says he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What that looks like is what we see in Revelation chapter 14. And what we see here is this behind the veil image of this spiritual conflict, this spiritual war, if you will. The reality of fierce satanic opposition against the lamb, against Jesus and against his redeemed people. And this picture of this warfare, this picture of this ongoing struggle is given for John's readers then and for us today as an assurance of God's sovereign control and of our well-being if we are in Christ. That's the contrast that we see constantly through Revelation 13 and 14. Those that are worshiping the beast and those that are standing with the lamb. There's a contrast back and forth all the way through. And it's foundational to our confidence, church, to understand this. It's, it's, it's important for our endurance. That's why there's a call for endurance in this passage of Scripture. But it's also a call for repentance and a call for a recognition. And this today, church, is the dark side of the gospel. This is the dark side of the gospel. And the gospel would not be light if there were not the darkness. And the light and the reality of it gives us the reason for the darkness. I'll, I'll, I'll try to explain what I mean by that in a minute. So let's look at the passage, all right? This is what we saw last week, starting in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. You ought to be thinking a little bit about the mark of the beast, all right? That sign that we just saw in chapter 13, and the contrast here of these who are marked with the name of Christ. Verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It's these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found. For they are blameless. So here in the midst of this assault of the dragon and this attack on his church stands, that's important, remember, stands the lamb who was slain that we saw earlier in Revelation. And standing with him are his redeemed and they are singing and they are pure and they are faultless and they are filled with the truth and they are carrying out this, this worship and, and they are if you will, portraying the very character of the one who saved them. And they're singing this new song, it says. And I think it's the new song that we saw earlier in Revelation chapter 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you've redeemed from, for yourself people from every tribe and language and people and nation. You were slain, and by your blood, it says, you have ransomed these. So they're singing this song of redemption. And so they, they, they stand before the Lamb, and they are like Him in the sense that they are pure. Clothed with his righteousness, okay, if you will, 
that's that's kind of what we see there. And and they and this this picture that we have, this contrast that we have. And last week I made this application and I'll make it again later on today. But this picture in a world that calls for our attention and many ways demands our affection. That's that's the world we live in. It calls us away from Christ, and that's the picture that's in this first part of the chapter of spiritual adultery. This isn't talking about marital relationships. This is talking about being in a covenant love relationship with Christ and forsaking that. And this picture of purity, moral purity, is really a picture of spiritual purity. And and here's this picture. They're redeemed. They're faithful. They endure. And they stay faithful and they stay committed. That's the picture that we have here. Now then, the scene shifts, starting in verse 6. And we have these heavenly messengers, these three angels. Follow along with me. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and those who receive the mark of its name. Here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds followed them. Let's just pause for a minute and pray before we jump into this. And Father, we do thank you for your word today. Thank you for this picture of that wonderful salvation that is ours, Lord, in Christ. Um, There, that picture, God, of being redeemed, marked with his name, Lord, belonging to him for all of eternity. Lord, filled with praise and worship for you and also marked, Lord, by the very characteristic of Christ, holy and, 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 and truth. Lord, just, God, thank you for that today. And Father, we just pray now for um, your Holy Spirit to lead us through these verses as we look at, um, Lord, this, this other side of the gospel, if you will. And Father, we pray uh, that this word would bear fruit in our lives, in our witness, in our fellowship, indeed in our community and around the world. Uh, Father, we just lift this up to you in Christ's name. Amen. So we look at these angels and their urgent message. We'll look at the harvest of the earth here in just a minute. But let's look first at these angels. And think about this. God deserves worship. That's what the angel is declaring. His enemies will face his wrath. And his redeemed will receive his rest. That's that's the picture that we have here. He is worthy of our worship. His enemies will face his wrath and his redeemed will rest. And again, there's this contrast back and forth between the mark of the beast, between those who follow the beast and those who belong to the lamb. And that's what we see here. This first angel comes and declares this message. Fear God. He has given us his gospel and we need to believe it. Now, as with so many other parts of Revelation, there's just all kinds of ways we could go with this. Now, angels, as we have seen and will continue to see, play a prominent role in the book of Revelation. We see angels more often in the book of Revelation than any other book. And sometimes they come and serve. Come some, sometimes they come and announce judgments. Sometimes they're coming um, just to proclaim a warning. And here this angel is where everyone can see him. All right? Notice, notice what it says there. 
that he is flying directly overhead. And this is, if you will, the, the term actually means like middle heaven. It, it's, it's as far as the sun would reach in its apex. And the idea is he is where everyone on earth can see him. And he is also proclaiming in a voice that everyone on earth can hear him. He proclaims with a loud voice. And what we see him proclaiming, what we see being carried out in this, in this chapter, is what we saw earlier with the seventh trumpet. Okay, so remember, this prophetic word, this apocalyptic word, it's not necessarily sequential. It's a picture of what is now and what is to come. The time frame on it sometimes is hard to grasp. But look back and see what was proclaimed, what was said about this seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 11. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding the saints the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That's what we see beginning to be played out. That's what we see pictured here. And so as this picture of of the seventh trumpet is being given for us, what we see here is what I believe is one last time the gospel is proclaimed. Now, I've struggled with this this idea this week. I've, I've talked to a couple of folks about it. Before I get into where my struggle is, notice what's being said. It is a message for every human being. All right? This is a message for every human being. The text tells us that the angel proclaims this loud voice to those who dwell on the earth. It is those from every Nation and tribe and language and people. No one is excluded. This is a this is a message for every human being. And it is the eternal gospel that is being proclaimed. I think there's two at least two facets of that, two two ways we look at this. One, it's an eternal gospel in that it was determined before the foundation of the world. The gospel was not God's oh no, what am I going to do? The gospel was determined before the foundation of the world. It's eternal in that sense. But it's also eternal in the fruit of it, right? That we receive eternal life. So it's a picture of God's intentions for us for all time. And it's a picture of his benefit, his blessing to us for all time. It's eternal life in that sense. And so it's the eternal gospel. Now, here's the question that I've struggled with. Is this truly a, an invitation For some to come and believe in Christ, given the end time structure of what's going on here, here in this tribulation, here in this picture where literally the world is in ruins. Is this angel proclaiming an invitation to come and believe or is he rather proclaiming, if you will, in proclamation form what has been denied by all? Which which one of those is it? And part of the struggle that I've had this week is there's no place else in Scripture that we see angels Given the job of evangelism, that's that's our job. That's the job of the church. That's the calling of the redeemed. Okay, it's it's not necessarily the the calling of angels. And I I really appreciate on one hand um, what what Andy Davis says about this. It's it's really kind of comical to be because he's talking about whether or not angels would actually be effective in their job as evangelists. Now, he says angels would do an amazing job. They'd be utterly fearless. They'd be impossible to kill or keep in prison. They would not need to learn any language or culture. They could travel easily. They'd need no airline tickets, no TSA screening. There'd be no need for financial support. They'd be tireless. They'd be free from sin, relentless, and would probably preach the gospel to every single human being within a month. And if they appeared glorious and radiant with the glory of the Lord that they did to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem, their hearers would be terrified and would scarcely put up a single word of opposition to them. But then he goes on to say, perhaps that's the reason why God didn't choose missionaries. I mean, angels as missionaries. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Not by being scared into it. One, one aspect of hellfire preaching 
And I said last week, it's, fear is a valid reason to come to Christ. But if it stops at fear, your heart is not changed. Your heart is never changed by fear alone. J.D. Greer says that God doesn't only need to save us from hell. He needs to save us from the hell in us. And so here's this picture of, of this angel proclaiming with this loud voice. And I really don't know. My, my, my personal feeling on this, and it is that, and I'm wide open to, is that this isn't so much an invitation as it is a proclamation. You have denied the opportunities that were given to you to receive the gospel. Hence, there's a second and third angel coming. So that, that, is, that is one way to look at it. The other would be, no, this angel is, God in his mercy has chosen this one and only time to proclaim the gospel through an angel. And given one last time those, those rebels an opportunity. John MacArthur puts it this way, what a gracious God we have with an earth that is literally burning and smoldering. And across its face is death in every dimension from the plants to man. And the frightening, smoldering, devastated universe is gasping its last breath and is still the object of God's gracious warning. And God is calling people even then from the kingdom of darkness, the really dark darkness, into the kingdom of light. That may be. Praise God if it is. Praise God if it is. But I will tell you, that's not a really good way for us to view life. I'm, I'm, I'm going to... God will go, God's going to give me one more chance. I'll address that in a minute. But don't bank your soul on it. Don't bet on it. Okay? Danny Aiken does say this, and I think this is wise. He says, before you can introduce someone to the Redeemer, you first must help them understand that there is a Creator. The Creator to whom all humanity is accountable. And that's what this angel ultimately proclaims. proclaims it's, it's, it is, if you will, that general revelation of God that we see in Revelation. I mean, excuse me, in Romans, that God has revealed himself and what he has created and every human being is accountable to that. Every human being is accountable to what God has revealed himself in creation. And I have in my room, in my office there, a, a storying cloth. I've had it in there for years that a missionary family gave us. A storying cloth is just a picture of different pictures of the story, a biblical theological picture starting with God's creation. Because there are nations and groups and tribes, they don't have the Bible, they don't have it translated in their language, they have no biblical frame of reference at all. You have to start with the world around them that this didn't just come into existence by accident. There's a God who created it and we're accountable to him. You know what's crazy? Is that's our culture today. We live in a culture where there is no biblical reference. They weren't raised in church. They don't understand the word sin. So start with creation. Heck, most people are worshiping it anyway. Start there. Point them to the Creator. And then from there, point them to the Redeemer. So this angel comes and proclaims this message. And it's this message that every human being is accountable for. Then there's this second angel. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So this message from this angel seems to indicate that those who heard the first angel didn't respond well. And so here this second angel comes. And Babylon, as we understand, and we need to keep this in mind because we're going to see it more clearly throughout the next few chapters. Babylon is not just a city, it's a system. It is the worldwide system that is opposed to God. Opposed to his truth, opposed to his king, Jesus, and opposed to his people. Babylon is a system. It's, it's not just a city. And the angel is announcing with the emphasis on two, he, fallen, fallen. There's that emphasis of that dual use of the word there. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The angel is announcing its entire collapse. And this is another idea in the prophetic word, right? It is announced in the future, but it's already started. It's already moving in that direction. 
And so fallen, fallen is Babylon. It's a future occurrence that's already in motion. And history here has just come full circle, right? Back in Genesis, all of humanity at the time gathered at the Tower of Babel, Babylon. God judged them and dispersed them. But like a dog returns to its vomit, so we're returning back to that place where we are God and He is not. And Babylon is not new. It started there in, the, in, in Genesis. And it's just going to continue and continue and continue. But it is doomed. It is doomed because it is not the kingdom of God. And so all idolatry, all false religion, everything that this world, everything that the beast and the dragon and Satan want to bring and put before us as the option, all right, the better option. No, it's fallen. And in chapter 13, the image was given there that even our, even our economy, even, even our the physical needs that we have. The idea was given there that, that even our material security is tied in to being tied to Babylon. And so this picture that we have there, of this idea of being made to drink, the, the angel proclaims, she, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. To drink the wine is to, meet, to, to fully absorb it, right? I mean, we talk about that when we take communion. To receive Christ as we do in that little cup, pictured in that little cup, is to, is to take him in, to consume him completely. And, and that's this picture here. To drink is to be fully absorbed by, to take it into oneself. And this idea of the spiritual harlotry and the prostitution that was judged earlier. And, and just think about it. First there's the taste. Then there's another taste. And then there's the buzz. And that buzz kind of starts to let the defenses down a little bit. And then all of a sudden, it tastes a little better. We want a little more. And before you know it, it seems sweet and we're under the influence and the intake is total and the intoxication is fatal. And so what we have pictured here with this force to wean, not, not force rather, but choosing to, to drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, just hear those words there, is this picture of the world system and the way it intoxicates us and entices us and draws us away. And before we know it, we are drunk with passion on the things of this world. And the cost in that church is immense. It, it cannot be overstated. And in fact, it's a timeless warning because Revelation chapter 18 We'll hear this. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. There in that passage in Revelation, the people of God are encouraged to come out from her. Sober up, church. Recognize the consequence. Recognize the characteristic of your walk is what this angel is proclaiming. Hosea, the prophet, said, harlotry, wine and new wine, take away understanding. My people consult their wooden idols for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. The contrast all throughout this passage is that is God our source of security and our identity? Is he the joy of our lives or is it is it the drink that the world gives us? The third angel. Here comes this third angel. Followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone receives the worship of its beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink. So there's there's this total consumption again. This time, before where they drank the wine of the harlot, the, the wine of Babylon, the wine of the world. Here it is. This time they will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This, I'm, I'm listening to a new podcast, okay? The name of the podcast is called Bear Grease. All right. I encourage you to listen to it. It is really, really good. It's just old country boy from Arkansas, but his themes are really good. So he did one this week on Daniel Boone. Now, I've read a couple of biographies of Daniel Boone. 
And there is a chapter in Daniel Boone's young life as he was a teenager here in North Carolina in the Yadkin Valley there just before you get to Wilkesboro. He was, he was becoming known as a, as a good hunter. But he was also responsible for being out in the woods in the summertime with his mother taking care of the cows. Well, one day when it came time to gather the cows in, she went out to look for young Daniel and he's not there. She can't find him. So she gathers the cows. She milks them herself. She does the milk. She puts it in the spring house. She does everything she's supposed to do. Well, the next morning, little Daniel's still not there. Now, he's probably somewhere around 13 or 14, the biographers tell us. He's not there the next morning. Halfway through the day, he's still not there. So his mother becomes concerned, walks five miles into town, puts together a search party, and they go out looking for young Daniel. Look all day, all night. Finally, the next day, see a plume of smoke rising up out in the distance, follow the smoke there and find young Daniel sitting on a bearskin, cooking some of the meat over the fire. And he says, I knew exactly where I was. He tells them exactly where he was, nine miles from where he should be and on and on and on. And, and here's the point of the historian and the point of even of that podcast. These men came to save Daniel from the very thing that he was skilled and equipped and called to do. I mean, he, he's a hunter. His father would say, let his sisters learn how to read. He's going to provide the meat. They wanted to save Daniel from the very thing that he was here to do. We want to do that for Jesus when it comes to eternal wrath. Let's save him. Let's somehow rescue lowly and gentle Jesus from this concept of eternal wrath. And he'll have none of it. Scripture will have none of it. And this picture that we have before us is a terrifying picture. It, it, is, it is sobering. It is, it is a picture of hell. And it is, in a, it is a picture of eternal damnation. And, and it, is, it, it seems so clear to, to many of us, it seems so clear, and even in the context of all of Scripture... And, and some would say there's no way you can read these verses and come up with any kind of doctrine of universalism. But many, many do. Many do. Not many years ago, a book was published by a man named Rob Bell. The title of his book was called Love Wins. Subtitle, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. One reviewer summarized that book this way. Hell is what we create for ourselves when we reject God's love. Hell is both a present reality for those who resist God and a future reality for those who die unready for God's love. Bell said, hell is what we make of heaven when we cannot accept the good news of God's forgiveness and mercy. But hell is not forever, he says. God will have his way. How can his good purposes fail? Every sinner will turn to God and realize that he has already been reconciled to God in this life or in the next. In the end, Bill says, love wins. Now, David Bentley Hart, I've mentioned him before. He wrote a book a couple of years ago entitled That All Shall Be Saved. And here's what Hart says. Even if the received Christian view of hell were that of an exclusive preserve, for only the very worst of souls, like Adolf Hitler or Pol Pot, the sheer brutality, excuse me, the sheer brutal banality of the idea of everlasting torment would still be morally unintelligible. As it happens, of course, the received view throughout most of Christian history has actually been that hell is the final destination not merely of monsters like Hitler, but of many among us, all sorts of lesser miscreants. The wanton, the unbaptized, the unbelieving, the unelect, the unlucky. But this hardly matters. No matter how exclusive we imagine the criteria for membership in the society of the damned to be, nothing makes the idea morally coherent. That, that's what Hart says. So the idea of universalism is not rare, and it is increasing. It, it is this idea that in the end all will be saved is is rampantly growing. There's also those who would say no one can read this and come up with the idea of annihilationism. And annihilationism is the idea that the wicked will one day ultimately at some point in time cease to exist. It is not eternal. Okay? There's an end to it. And a few years ago, well, it's probably been 
15 years ago. There was no small uproar within the Christian community when none other than John Stott, just an amazing biblical scholar and teacher. But John Stott said, emotionally, I find the concept of eternal conscious torment intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. Some said Stott was unregenerate because of that view. But this idea of annihilationism is is also one that many would grasp. Kind of related to that is a third. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but you just need to understand, church, kind of where where people come from. The other is called conditional immorality or conditionalism. And here's what this one is. And while you may not be re- hear it referred to in that way, here's what it means. Conditionalists believe that human beings are not created immortal. God alone was created immortal. And only the redeemed, only those who are saved are given the gift of immortality. Those who are lost are not immortal. So in a sense, it's, an, it's, it's the idea of, of annihilationism. It just takes on a different view. C.S. Lewis. You know, I love C.S. Lewis. Now, his theology is not model, okay? There's, there's things about C.S. Lewis that we don't need to grasp. But here's one thing he said. He said, hell is a necessary conclusion to the Christian understanding that human beings were created to live forever. Here's how he said it. Christianity asserts that every human individual is going to live forever, and this must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I only lived 70 years. But, which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. He says, perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse. So gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it would be. So annihilationism and this idea that we're only conditionally immortal doesn't hold up. Ultimately, here's here's why we struggle with Revelation chapter 14. John Piper said it, I think, well, and I, I haven't found anyone who said it best. Why would Bentley Hart, why would Rob Bell, why would even John Stott, why would others want to come to this conclusion? Here's Piper's conclusion. Where God is small and man is big, hell will be abhorrent, indeed absurd, and the cross will be foolishness. The essence of evil is loving and preferring and desiring and treasuring and enjoying anything above God. That is treason. And since God is of infinite worth and beauty and greatness and honor, infinite, the failure to love and treasure and enjoy him above all things is an infinite outrage, worthy of infinite punishment. And this will make no sense where God is small and man is big. It will only make sense where people see God as great, as he really is, and see man, see ourselves, and see our outrageous, God-belittling self-centeredness for what it is. So that's ultimately, I think, the reason behind, behind why this and this concept. So this picture is one of conscious. Look at what it says. They will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Those who heard that from John as this letter was read in church that day would immediately go back to the Old Testament passage of Joel and they would be reminded there of this outpouring of God's wrath. They'd go to Isaiah and there they'd be reminded of this outpouring of God's wrath. There, this picture that they are, they are receiving full strength, the cup. Again, this idea of God's cup being this cup of his anger. His wrath is this, is this settled reaction. It's not an emotion. Neither is his fury. It's, this, it's like a forest fire that burns and burns and gets hotter and hotter and just continues. It's not, it's not anger like we understand it. It is settled, holy wrath against that which is unholy and sin and rebellious. So there's this picture of this God-settled, determined wrath against this. And it's poured full strength into the cup of his anger. The common action of the day was to kind of mix wine. All right? You mix it with fruit juice or water, kind of reduce the strength of it. No such idea here. It's unmixed. Literally, it says mixed, undiluted. But it means that this is the maximum effect. Staggering under the reality that omnipotent God, holy God, is pouring out this wrath against those who have rejected him. 
against those who have not obeyed the gospel, as Paul said in in 2 Thessalonians, what Jerome read a minute ago. Those who have chosen, and it is a choice. See, the mark of the beast is not something something that comes in clandestine at night. You don't wake up one morning with it on you some way. Oh, I didn't know they did that to me during the night. No, it's a choice. It's a choice. And those who make that choice here are facing this. It's the lake of fire. Here John says, they'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. It's, It's this idea, I mean, is heaven, I mean, excuse me, is hell the absence of God completely? And heaven is the presence of God? I mean, what, is, what does it say here? I mean, isn't that what Jerome read earlier out of Second Thessalonians? They will suffer the punishment of the eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory, it said, of his might. And here it says they're, they're suffering, if you will, in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will, they will be loathsome to all mankind. Later on in Revelation chapter 19, there's going to be the hallelujah chorus. And it's going to be over the fact of the judgment of God being visibly demonstrated before the redeemed. That's hard to grasp. It's, it's hard to understand how God's people will celebrate the reality of His judgment and wrath being poured out. That's why it requires for us to deeply consider, prayerfully consider the scriptural picture of God. And, and, and I think the best way to explain this is, is are, are those in hell just completely separated? Well, no. Clearly it says here they're in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. But there's a difference between, between being in God's presence and experiencing His joy and being in the visible presence of God and experiencing His judgment. And that's the difference. One is being in the presence of God, knowing the joy that comes from fellowship with Him. The other is being aware of God's holy presence for all of eternity and being aware that you're suffering the just result of your choice to reject Him and to refuse His gracious overture in the gospel. Like I said, later on in Revelation chapter 19, the reason we struggle with hell, I appreciate this, I was reading an article that J.D. Greer had written about this. Hell is what it is because God is who He is, he said. Hell is what it is because God is who he is. And, and, and he and goes on to explain God's holiness and his perfections are so complete. It's so complete that in the Old Testament, if anyone sees him completely as he is, they die. And the reason the doctrine of hell has fallen out of favor with many is because we've lost our vision of who God is. We've taken our eyes off of our, our God, our Creator. Our holy, holy creator. And so when that happens, when we stop trembling before him, when we start, stop fearing him, as the angel said, that's the mandate for all of humanity. Fear him who made heaven and earth. And when we stop fearing him, we stop seeing him as he is. And then we stop seeing Jesus for who he is. And we stop seeing the cross for what it is. And we stop seeing the consequences for refusing that for what they are. Revelation 14 won't let us do that. It won't let us do that. Why is it that Jesus talked more about hell than he did really anything else? It's because he understands that's what he came to save us from. It's because Jesus understood better than anyone what it was he was going to suffer on the cross. It was because Jesus understood more than anyone what he would do To free us from the fear of hell. And to bring us to himself so we would not know it. It was Jesus who said over and over and over. In Matthew 5, 22. Anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Anyone who says you fool will be guilty of the fire, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Matthew 8. 
I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 13, we'll see in a second, he refers to this to this harvest that's coming. And he will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil, and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said in Mark, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better, he said... For you to lose a hand than to go into the fires of hell. Over and over and over, Jesus repeats this. Over and over, he emphasizes, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Shut out, away from that sweet fellowship with God. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone. And one of the things he said was the eternality of it. That it just goes on and on and on. The smoke of their torment rises forever, it says in verse 11. And again, this is the hardest part of it for many. This is what so many would want to figure out a way to get around this reality, this eternal conscious torment. But the Bible won't let us escape that. What the Bible will point us to is that there is a means of escape, and that is right now through faith in Jesus. Right now. Today is the day of salvation. Come to him today. Interesting. Why why is it that this next little blessing that comes in verse 12 and 13 is here? Here's a call for endurance for the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Why, Why would there be a call for endurance after this clear, stark message of eternal punishment and wrath being poured out? Well, in the context of that day, and I believe in the context of ours. There is no one who's going to have a problem with a loving God. I'm cool with that. And everybody else is too. God is love. All right? We'll paint that under every banner, fly it under every flag. But the fact that I am not omnipotent over my own life, the fact that I am not the one who is ultimately in control, the fact that ultimately I am called to be subservient to And in allegiance to someone other than myself is not a message that the dragon, the beast, or any of those who follow him will cotton to very easily. In fact, not at all. And there will will be no hearing from a culture around us of this reality that there are consequences There are answers to be given, and ultimately we are accountable to God. And the consequences of that, the accountability for that is heavy. It's eternal. It's destructive. That's not a popular message. It calls for endurance. It calls for endurance to us to keep the faith, to hold on to the commandments of God, and to walk faithfully to the whole counsel of the Word of God. And then there's this promise. Notice what it said up in verse 11. They who are in torment like this, have no rest day or night. Those who are in Christ, who die in the Lord, they are resting. They rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. There's this picture of this rest, this, this shalom, if you will, being at peace, at one with God, at one with the other, and this picture of just being there, just experiencing that the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want it. He makes me lie down in green pastures and He leads me beside still waters and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And this picture of being with Him in this beautiful place of contentedness is contrasted with no rest there. There's a harvest that's coming. What time is it, baby? It is. I know I did. I know I asked. So really, what time is it? Ten till. Yeah, it's time to stop. All right. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You can read the conclusion, all right? I'll post the rest of this, all right? I'll post the rest of this. Next week, we're not, we're not going to be in Revelation next week. We're going to take a, a one-week break before we jump into the seven plagues. We need that. We, we need that, all right? But I will wrap this up. Thank you, Susan, for keeping time for me. Guys, church... 
We don't need to rescue Jesus from hell. We don't need to rescue God from this picture of his righteous, holy indignation against rebels who deserve punishment. We do need to offer this message of refuge, this message of rescue to a community and culture around us. It's, Ezekiel says that if we know, if God calls us as watchmen on the wall and warns us of danger, and my, my paraphrase of this, this segment, of, of if we don't warn those around us, then their blood is on us. Now, they'll suffer the consequence, but we knew. We didn't say anything. We didn't do anything. And this passage should call us to consider and just meditate on the character of God. It should give us confidence. Heaven is not rattled by the reality of hell. It is not. And in fact, as you see in the book of Exodus, the song of Moses that comes at the end of the Red Sea, the whole deal at the Red Sea, when the children of Israel stand by and watch God become become their, their warrior, and God is between them and their enemies, and on their behalf, He punishes their enemies, and they watch it take place, and they celebrate it taking place. They rejoice in the salvation that God has wrought on their behalf. Heaven is not rattled by the reality of hell. And neither should we be. But we should be shaken to our core by the reality of how fearsome God is. And even more so by the reality of how far he went to rescue us from this through Jesus. That Jesus drunk that full cup of God's wrath even as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, if this cup could pass from me, however, not my will but yours. And he drank it to the dregs. He drank it unmixed, the full wrath of God. That's what the cross is all about. So we need to make much of Jesus, much of his love, much of the holiness that required that extended, that, that, that beautiful extant picture of God's love. Consider that, church. If we will consider God for who he is, we will have no problem with the reality of his wrath and of his justice. And then we will treasure his compassion. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today. I pray that you would honor your word, not my preaching of it or my discussion or talk about it. But God, honor your word. Stir the soul of us as your church, Lord, to be captivated by your whole character. And stir us by the compassion of our Savior who endured this hell. For the sake of lost sinners. And may we go bearing that beautiful message of his compassion and love. And I pray that in his name. Amen.